I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. If you like us, I would hope you would recommend us to a friend, give us a favorable review. It's June, and we're continuing our theme of talkin' walkin', covering some fun films starring the one and the only Christopher Walken. This week, we roll out 1990s Abel Ferrara classic, The King of New York. Join us! As I age, I find that movies are useful guide markers for tracking time. Where I was, what I was doing, and who I was with all fit into a larger memory of space that helps me recollect events as they happened based on what I was watching. This film ended up being something that cemented itself as my junior year of high school when I first spotted it at Top Video back in Cary, Illinois, sitting on the side of the shelf of the employee recommendations. At that point, I had never seen an Abel Ferrara movie before. At this time, Christopher Walken was the biggest name in this film because, frankly, Larry Fishburne was just a guy I saw on the poster from a movie such as Fled, and The Matrix hadn't even come out yet. Steve Buscemi was still just an indie actor. He had not yet become what he was going to become. Wesley Snipes was probably the second biggest name in this film to me, and in reality, this was supposed to be David Caruso's big break, but you can do the math on how that all turned out for him. Between this and Mad Dog and Glory, he's lucky that his ginger ass got to be on NYPD Blue at all. But I digress. So, I watched this film and I fell in love with it upon its first viewing. Don't get me wrong, it's a hot mess, but it has such heart. The villains of the movie are far more likable, and you end up caring far more about their motives and goals than the stated quote-unquote good cops that are trying to stop them. It's loaded with interesting ideas and things that are indeed unique, but Like so many home fitness routines, the sentiment is, meh, I'll start working on that next week. After renting it, I was compelled to go to my local Suncoast video at the mall, that should take a few of you back, and secure a copy of it for myself, and make sure that then my brother and my good friend Matt watched it as well. They too loved it, and for a brief, albeit nerdy moment in time, we would actually greet each other with the quote-unquote Frank White introduction, the dance cheer, which you will get to hear shortly. There is so much to love here, and of course, so much to unpack. So why don't we just skip ahead and get to that old trailer? Even the papes are famous. You're famous, you get anything you want. And that's what's so great about New York. Yeah. Yeah. 
some shoes with matching laces. A permanent box at the Sheepshead Races. A porcelain tub with boiling water. A Saturday night with the mayor's daughter. Look at me, I'm the king of New York. Suddenly, I'm respectable, staring right at your lousy wit stature. Nothing with all the muckety mucks. I'm blowing my dough and going deluxe. Then dare I be? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Couldn't resist. Just, just could not help myself. Here's the trailer. Frank White is a free man. How come you never came to see me? Who wanted to see you in a cage, man? He served his time. What can we expect from the reformed Frank White? I want to be mayor. He paid his debt. Go someplace where you can stay out of trouble. But some things don't change. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. You're waiting years for this. Frank White, as played by Christopher Walken, is a drug lord who's being released after serving a stint in Sing Sing Prison. Intercut with his departure, we get to see his crew, led by Jimmy Jump, his top lieutenant, as played by Larry Fishburne. Those were the days. And we see him finishing a drug deal where they rip off and then execute a rival, King Tito. Along the way, that same night, they end up executing yet another rival gang leader, El Zappa, killing him as he makes a call from a phone booth. Oh, how quaint. Frank reconnects with his gang at the Plaza Hotel, holed up in the penthouse suite, and we get to see just how loyal his crew is to him and each other. And seriously, you have a rogues gallery of actors here playing his crew. Giacarlo Esposito, Paul Kellerone, Steve Buscemi, Teresa Randell, Leonard L. Thomas. It's insane. And it's a lot of fun. Here, here's a snippet of them all getting back together. What's in the cup? Root beer. You want some? There's some things I don't do. Pop, pop, pop. 
bitches, man. Clean. Them Colombian motherfuckers, <laughs> they took permanent vacation in hell, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I must have been away too long because my feelings are dead. <laughs> I, I feel no remorse. Yo. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every beat in jail makes you feel like that, man. I got a present for you. Check it out. They were King Tito's. Well, he don't need them where he is now. <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe you would uh, donate them to a clothing drive or something. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> right, man. Having a good time, huh, Jim? Hey, man, I've been waiting years for this. <laughs> Emilio Zappa sends his regards. <laughs> yeah! You know how I love money. <laughs> the gang departs, and Frank goes to have dinner with his right-hand business attorney, Delicio, as played by Paul Calderon, and his personal lawyer and lover, Jennifer, as played by Randall, to discuss his plans now that he's out of prison. Frank announces that he wants to give back to the city, and half-jokingly, half-serious, says he would also like to run for mayor. In turn, he tells Delicio to go set up a meeting with the Italian mob boss, Artie Clay. Frank then leaves with Jennifer and takes a ride back to the plaza via the subway, and it is here that they decide to have a sexual tryst. Seriously, one of the stranger things I can say I have seen filmed is a scene of Christopher Walken getting to second base with a woman in a subway car. Don't get me wrong, he's still great, it's as unsettling to see as it is for me to just say that sentence right now into this microphone. The lovers are interrupted by a trio of aspiring stick-up men who attempt to mug them. Cool as a cucumber, Frank slowly reveals a gun in his waistband, but still gives the trio money, telling them, and it's a refrain we will hear throughout this entire film, just come to the plaza and ask for Frank if they're interested in some real work. Delicio goes to Artie Clay, as instructed, and finds out that the mob boss is not in a cordial mood to receive him, nor is he willing to even sit down and talk about business with Frank White. When Delicio asks if that's his final answer, he then decides to add extra insult to injury, telling him, yeah, and you can tell Frank this, deciding that he needs to drive his point home by spontaneously urinating on Delicio's shoes and pant leg. The insult doesn't go unnoticed, and in a flash, Frank is backed up by his gang and shows up in a Little Italy social club and bar to discuss things with Clay in person. The meeting doesn't really go well for Clay, but Frank, again, winds up offering jobs to any and all who want them. I got your message, Johnny. You stupid son of a bitch. You running games here? I want to play. Sure, Frank Slay. Bring your friends. Nah, I want to play with Artie. Come on, let's go, will you? Junk deals. Blackjack house out. You got some balls coming here.
Okay. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. A nickel bag gets sold in the park. I want in. <laughs> you guys got fat while everybody starved on the street. It's my turn. Hmm. You think you're gonna live long enough to spend that money, you fucking hump? If any of you are tired of getting ripped off by guys like that, you come with me. I'm at the Plaza Hotel. You're welcome. You're all welcome. Enjoy. While at dinner the next evening, Frank is interrupted and accosted by three detectives from the NYPD Narco Squad. Bishop is played by Victor Argo. Gilly is played by David Crusoe, and Flanagan is played by Wesley Snipes. They decide to take Frank for a ride, and then pull off into an abandoned lot where they open up their trunk and question Frank about the body of El Zappa that they happen to have stored there. Frank again plays it cool, and his crew and lawyers eventually catch up to the officers, and they stymie their efforts to intimidate Frank. Frank, I'm going to talk to you. I don't think so. Come on. O'Neill can wait for two old friends, can he? I'm not your friend. Come on, Frank, we missed you while you were away. Thought about you, too. Yeah. I heard a rumor about you. What's well, that? I heard you got AIDS getting dicked up your ass in prison. <laughs> That's what I heard. I, don't I know. thought about you every time I jerked off, dickhead. <laughs> Look, why don't we just take this outside, huh, Frank? Next time we're a tie. Get paid. Here we go. You tell me. I don't know. The only chance you get, White, what's it gonna be? Are you arresting me? Oh, fuck, here we go. If so, do it. Here if we go. Not, I got people waiting for me. Oh, shut the fuck up, motherfucker! Hey, Frank! Hey, Things. 
I know what you're up to, White. Forget it. I'm gonna make you and your friends disappear long before that. Welcome home, fuckface. Billy! Fucking car. Last fucking time, you fuck. We're on your fucking ass. Give your friends that message. Frank shrugs this entire interaction off. Although, now that he's done with the Italians, he has to start to reach out for other, you know, partners when it comes to taking over the city. So, he begins to reach out to the triads in Chinatown, courting the gang boss Larry Wong, asking him to partner with him and build a burgeoning drug empire. Frank wants to split the profits evenly, arguing that he would like to take his money and then use it as part of a deal to reinvest it into the community, rebuilding the local hospital and schools of the area. Wong doesn't have any interest in Frank's Robin Hood pipe dreams, and tells him flat out he is not interested in having any sort of partnership with him. Either Frank just gives him $3 million up front, or he walks away from this deal. Frank lets him go. The detectives, in the meantime, have become obsessed with Frank and his crew and use every opportunity they can to arrest the gang, finding them, buying lunch at a fast food restaurant, and threatening them that they have a witness in one of Tito's bodyguards who allegedly had survived the attack on the drug lord. Frank uses his legal means to get the entire crew released, much to the narco squad's disgust. You know, because Frank knows how the legal system works, and somehow realizes that people have rights. The crew head to Chinatown and end up having a shootout with the Triad Gang, where they end up killing Larry and simply taking all 200 plus pounds of his cocaine. They then go to a safe house slash club and they throw a party. And everything's going great. Schoolie D's blasting on the jukebox. Deals are being made. And that's just when some odd characters start coming around. After making it past security, the men who have guised themselves as drug dealers turn out to be rogue cops, Gilly, Flanagan, and a few of the younger, more impressionable officers on the Narco Squad crew, and they've decided to take the law into their own hands and try to kill Frank and his crew there. Many of Frank's gang are killed, but in the ensuing shootout, Jump stays behind to let Frank get further away. Jimmy Jump ends up confronting and killing Flanagan, but is severely wounded. Gilly finds him and distraught over his friend Flanagan's death, and the death of the other officers summarily executes Jump in an abandoned parking lot. Frank discovers he was set up by Delisio, and he has his crewmen work him over. Probably at his most chilling, Walkins Frank interrupts the interrogation just to ask him why. After some Hemming and hawing, Delisio finally admits that, look, they just offered him an obscene amount of money. So Frank leaves him, willfully ignoring his cries and pleas, telling the crew simply to bury him with it, dooming Delisio. It's also notable, he is now flanked by the youth from the subway, and some of Artie Clay's boys have indeed joined him. Bishop, meanwhile, is disgusted by Gilly's vigilantism, and the two attend the funeral for their fellow officers who died at the gang assault. Unable to cope, Gilly retreats to his car to vent his frustrations and cry. As he sits there pounding his steering wheel and shaking in his car, a limo pulls up beside him as he sits parked.
Officer Gilly's head is separated from his body by a sawed-off shotgun blast delivered by the one and only Frank White. Retribution for the killing of Jimmy Jump and for the murder of his crew members. Frank leaves the scene before the cops can even react and decides to be proactive. This entire time, Detective Bishop and his men have been on him. So he's going to decide to lay it all out for them. He personally goes to Bishop's apartment and tells him that he has placed bounties on all detectives that have been involved in his case, warning Bishop that it's time to call it all off. Frank explains that he has killed his rivals due to their involvement in other morally reprehensible endeavors, such as trafficking and prostitution, and basically sees himself as just another guy trying to make his way in the business world. When the DA's office investigated the sudden death of Artie Clay, they found that he left a $13 million estate. How do you explain that? Then there's Larry Wong, who owned half a Chinatown when he passed away. Larry used to rent his tenements to Asian refugees, his own people, for $800 a month to share a single toilet on the same floor. How about King Tito? He had 13-year-old girls hooking for him on the street. Those guys are dead. Because I don't want to make money that way. Emil Zappa. The Mata brothers. They're dead. Because they were running the city into the ground. You expected to get away with killing all these people? I spent half my life in prison. I never got away with anything, and I never killed anybody that didn't deserve it. Who made you judge and jury? Well, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Now, for the likes of Artie Clay and the rest of those bums, you slapped a tag on me for $50,000... You make me public enemy number one? <laughs> Is that some kind of joke? Well, I got a message for you and your friends. You tell them, I got a quarter million dollar contract on anyone involved in this case. Now, we all get to know what it's like when I, some asshole's going to step out of the dark and blow your head off. I want you to know what it's like to live that way. You tell them what I said. We should think you're going to be around long enough to see that. Where's that fucking phone? We're not talking about me. We're talking about taking over drug cartels. You think ambushing me in some nightclub's going to stop what makes people take drugs? This country spends $100 billion a year on getting high. And it's not because of me. All that time I was wasting in jail. You know, it just got worse. I'm not your problem. I'm just a businessman. Frank handcuffs Bishop to the chair and leaves, 
confident he's made his point. Bishop pulls a hidden gun out of the drawer and uses it to break the chair itself, giving chase to Frank. He manages to catch up to Frank on the subway, where the two men have yet another standoff. Both end up firing at each other, with Bishop dropping dead in the subway car. Frank makes it out of the station and hops into a waiting taxi. As he sits in the back of the car and traffic forms around them, he looks down to realize that he too has been hit. He's starting to bleed out. The driver looks back and sees that Frank is holding a gun and flees the cab. Frank wistfully looks out the window at the city skyline, thinking of what could have been and what he could have done. And as we see officers start to close in on the cab, he ends up closing his eyes and his hand holding his pistol goes limp at his side. The king is dead. Long live the king. So let's unpack this. For starters, this film was hated. Hated. Hated by critics and the press when it made its debut at the New York City Film Festival in 1990. During its initial screening, a large portion of the audience just got up and walked out before it even ended, and that includes Abel Ferrara's wife at the time. The screening finished, a woman at the press conference started addressing Ferrara stating, this film is an abomination. Why aren't you giving the proceeds from this film to a drug rehabilitation program? The next day, at the second screening, Lawrence Fishburne and writer Nicholas St. John were booed off the stage and kept from answering any questions during the Q&A post-film. Critics praised Walken's performance, but repeatedly the story was said to be a mess and claimed it was all incoherent and lacking a narrative flow. To this I say, they are morons. I find nothing hard to understand about this plot. Your good guys aren't really that good, and your bad guys are bad and or neutral figures at best in a story that is about the perspective and control over the violent underworld of New York City. Frank is a man who realizes after serving stint in prison that his time on earth is finite, and while he may not be a traditional good man per se, he seeks atonement to try to better his world the only way he knows how. In this case, he's going to make a better New York City before his life draws to a close, that is his goal. And he is so desperate to succeed. And this is a reoccurring theme that is featured in other films of Abel Ferrara. Uh, Bad Lieutenant and The Addiction both grapple with this same concept of a bad person looking for atonement. You can feel it in his performance. If I can have a year or two, I'll make something good. I'll do something. <laughs> something good. Just one year. That's all. 
For the time, I would like to also point out how revolutionary Frank is. He's operating a gang that is open to all. As long as you are open to improving the city and falling in line with Frank's way of dealing drugs, welcome aboard. It's a multi-ethnic, co-ed gang, completely loyal to him because he's completely loyal to them. His rage is palpable when he loses his friend and top man, Jimmy Jump, which only makes his revenge the sweeter upon Officer Gilly. Seriously, upon showing it to my friend Matt, we ended up, shamefully, rewinding the tape several times to watch the scene of, hey, you, over again. It's both badass and cold-blooded, but in concept of this strange reality where cops are technically the bad guys in a New York that no longer exists today, it's still really hilarious. <laughs> but again, we don't see this kind of level of openness with Frank's rivals. Not the Colombians, not the Italians, not the Chinese triad. They stick with their own groups, and they don't share a vision of expansion or a better city. Which is interesting since Frank ends up winning out over them all at the end of all their battles. In a cast groaning with this kind of talent, I would be remiss not to mention how great Larry, now call me Lawrence, Fishburne is, as he steals every scene he's in. Jimmy Jump is a wild character. He's tough, he's crazy, he loves working for Frank and supporting his fellow gang members, and he is actually shown to be an equally caring person, albeit not to those he eliminates. His dialogue at the Chicken Shack both makes me hungry and shows his humanity as he gives money to some poor kids to let them play arcade games in the restaurant. He also gives money to their grandmother before he is then dragged off by the cops. Yeah, can I help you? Can you help me? Yeah, you can start by getting me 15 pieces of chicken, motherfucker. Mix it up, I'm gonna barbecue on my crispy. You getting this all down, Chief? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want six pieces of corn, and I want, uh... You give me eight spare ribs? You give me, uh, 12 pieces of shrimp? Um... Uh, onion rings. You want tartar sauce or ketchup on those, man? I want tartar sauce. You got any uh, potato salad? No, we ain't got no potato salad. Look, get away from the games, all right? You ain't got no money. Just get away from the games, all right? What the fuck is the matter? What you talking about? You ain't got no money, man. Yo, is that it? Yeah, that's it. Make sure you get my food. Get it now. And don't be drooling on it, man. And I better not get none of that cat. I want chicken. Here, y'all. Here, double play the game. No offense, man. Uh, but you make sure they get what they want. Eh? Now, go ahead, go ahead. Y'all go play them games, here. Yeah? Play them games. Here, baby. Here, go play the games. Go ahead. Yo, what's happening with the food, man? What's up? I got all day, man. It's gonna be 5670 total. Did I say I was finished? I want something to drink. Maybe I want some birch beer. You got birch beer? No, we don't have no birch beer. I don't even know what that shit is. You got any root beer? Nah, we ain't got no root beer. Yeah, well, how much is this? 5690. 
Ferrara movies are very much an acquired taste. He's actually an important filmmaker for his time, um, starting sort of with exploitation fair, but then moving to respect and mainstream credibility. The problem with him is if you watch this movie and feel this movie is a violent or a mess of a film as the critics of the day felt, um, you're going to have even a harder time with some of the other things he's known for. Um, Miss 45 comes to mind, which is a fantastic piece of cinema, which is absolutely grindhouse-level fare. Um, a sort of rape-and-revenge fantasy uh, brought to life. Um, but then you have such finer works that dig at deeper meaning. Uh, as, as we had aforementioned, Bad Lieutenant, and The Addiction, The Funeral, and then even, uh, I believe as of 2014, his movie 444, which is about the impending end of the world. It, it's just actually a masterpiece. When Ferrer was given mainstream work with his... Uh, updated version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is just titled Body Snatchers, which I believe came out in 1993. Uh, not a bad flick, but it, you're getting into him out of his element. He needs gritty, he needs rough, he needs something that is hyper-real. And then giving him a box to play in actually makes him sort of more boring filmmaker. Um, I would love to visit his work uh, with Miss 45 and or Bad Lieutenant or even Bad Lieutenant's awful remake with Nick Cage. Um, the issue is just going to be I know far too many of my own family listen to this podcast and I don't even know how to begin to wrap my head around describing the plots and or the character development that happens in either of those films. So... While it will be a uh, task for the future, I, I still would say Abel Ferreira gets a lot of short shrift, I feel, um, partly because he made such controversial films and partly because he himself is crazy as a shithouse rat. While this film has been released... On a fine Blu-ray, here at the LSCE, we ended up screening the Artisan Special Edition DVD that was released in 2004. Both are chock full of features, including commentary from Ferrara, as well as producer Mary Kahn and editor Anthony Redman. A documentary about Ferrara's career 
circa 2004 is available as a featurette, uh, as well as a making of featurette involving Schoolie D, who provided the soundtrack to this film. If you're a Schoolie D fan, and honestly, if you enjoy what I would now call old school rap, um, something something you can definitely get behind, uh, you, you should give this a spin. Plus, you get trailers, TV spots, music videos to boot. How can you go wrong? The Artisan Blu-ray can be obtained on Amazon right now for $9.99, and it is well worth your hard-earned folding money. Again, folks, I get nothing for this plug, but we think it's important here to continue your support and purchase physical media so these great distributors will keep releasing content for us to buy and enjoy for our viewing pleasure. And seriously, with a movie like this, you can't go wrong. So that's going to wrap things up for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you all for listening. If you like us, please follow us on Facebook at our page, The Linden Street Cinema Experience, and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram as LSCE underscore podcast. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an iTunes user, please, we would really appreciate a five-star and a review. If you want to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. So until next time, take care and remember, folks, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. <laughs>